As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome back. It's Justin Briley, head of Premier Unbelievable. Also a huge fan of C.S. Lewis. His writings have shaped my own thinking and faith in so many ways down the years. That's why I love sitting down with Alistair McGrath for this show. And presently we're continuing our journey through several of Lewis's shorter writings. Today's topic, Is Theism Important? Now, this essay originally took the form of a talk at the Socratic Club in Oxford in 1952. Uh, Lewis explained the difference between faith A as intellectual assent and faith B as a trust or confidence in God, as well as the experience of awe that many people have. Well, if you like podcasts, then do check out our newest podcast, Unapologetic 2. It's a weekly bite-sized engagement with apologetic themes from leading thinkers and evangelists. You can hear the latest set of shows with John Lennox there, a really great sit-down conversation with another brilliant Oxford thinker and apologist. You're just looking for Unapologetic wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can find all of our podcasts and shows at our website, premierunbelievable.com. If you click on the shop icon there, you can also get hold of the digital download of this year's Unbelievable Conference too. So much to access now from Premier Unbelievable. All the links are with today's show. Right, let's talk about theism. Welcome back to the show. Uh, We're currently pursuing a series of podcast episodes with Alistair, looking at some of Lewis's shorter form writings, his essays, his uh, articles, his sermons, and so on. Today, one from 1952, asking, is theism important? Uh, Give us the background to this particular one, Alistair. who, Who was the audience? Where was it first delivered? Well, this was delivered to the Socratic Club in Oxford in 1952. Now, the Socratic Club was basically um, a student-led organization, but Lewis was a senior member. And basically, it was a club designed to talk about uh, philosophical, religious issues. And Lewis really made it his own particular um, forum for, for developing ideas. And many of the best uh, short papers he delivered actually were originally given to this group of people. So think of Oxford undergraduates, but some senior university members as well. And so they're talking about things of more academic interest. But in this case, as, as we'll see, things are really of wider cultural relevance as well. And in the way that the, I suppose, the inklings in an informal way sharpened his thinking and his ideas and, and so on, I suppose the Socratic Club, I remember we've talked before about, I think it was in the context of the Socratic Club that he had that 
engagement dialogue with Elizabeth Anscombe, for instance. So, so these were this was an opportunity for Lewis to both flex his intellectual muscles and to be challenged as well. Exactly. He would get feedback. And so what I suspect is that the published version of his talks were rather better than the original ones, uh, but we, don't, we haven't got access to those. But uh, it was a great way for Lewis to um, refine his arguments. Um, this, this one interestingly begins by talking about paganism, of all things. Um, and let me just give a quote. He says, uh, a pagan, as history shows, is a man eminently convertible to Christianity. And he talks about the fact that uh, he would much rather, in, in a sense, um, that, that the, the, the country was heading towards paganism than the sort of scientific materialism that he often saw around him. So tell us about that beginning to, to Lewis's uh, opening to this. Well, one of the big themes of Lewis's um, discovery of Christianity was that he could easily see how he could make connections between Christianity and um, the pagan myths of the Nordic era, which he loved so much. And what we're seeing here is Lewis making a more general point, which is actually, if there is a resurgence of paganism, that has is very good news apologetically, because we can begin to make connections with this. And for Lewis, it was much easier to kind of way make connections between Christianity and paganism than with, for example, various other forms of unbelief. So this is actually quite an important issue, I think, for us today, because at least I, the way I see it, I, I see paganism resurging in various forms with a growing um, uh, dissatisfaction with rather materialist approaches to the world, not necessarily leading to Christianity, but maybe to um, thinking about nature in some special way. And what Lewis is saying is, look, we can do something with this. We can build bridges between paganism and Christianity. And indeed, Lewis himself did that rather well. So I think it's a very important point to appreciate and uh, reflect on how we might develop it further today. I'd just be interested in where you're seeing that, because Lewis himself, I think, says, you know, we're unlikely to see, you know, Parliament being opened with the, the slaughtering of a white bull, you know, <laughs> or, you know, politicians, you know, offering their sandwiches in Hyde Park to the gods. So it may not be that explicit form of ancient paganism, but what, what sort of modes of paganism do you see sort of appearing in our day? Alistair? I think you're, what you're seeing is, if you like, um, a sort of some, somewhat selective um, approach to older forms of paganism. So you, you don't talk about human sacrifices or anything like that, but you talk instead about feeling close to nature, having a sense mm. of um, awe in the presence of nature, or in effect, treating nature as divine, because that way you respect it. And these are all ideas which can be traced back to paganism, even though they're being kind of picked up rather selectively. And each of these actually is very interestingly apologetic. You can do interesting things with these. And Lewis himself does that in some of his writings. So I think what I would want to say is that um, if paganism becomes a significant element in Western culture, as it is in parts of Europe, then I think Lewis offers us a very important approach which we can take and use in that context. I, I think I think I'd agree with you there in the sense that if you look at, you know, the environmental movement, for instance, there mm. are some aspects of it which, which do almost seem to go back to all, an, a semi quasi nature religion sort of view of m mother nature and, mm. and this idea that this anthropomorphizing almost of uh, us and our relationship with nature and so on. And, and I can understand why people would do that. And uh, I, I suppose, yes, the question is. What is the apologetic value potentially in, in helping people to point point people to, to again, as we've talked about before, the the truth that lies behind that that kind of approach? 
I think that's right. And certainly Lewis w- would say, look, let's not reject this. Let's um, try and help people to see how we can fulfill this or perhaps redirect it. Um, and I think that's a very important point for Lewis in general. That what he's saying is that Christianity tells a better story, which actually allows us to understand the other stories people tell, but actually enables them to find their own fulfillment through Christ. So it's a very rich apologetic theme and one that Lewis, I think, was um, very keen to pursue as often as possible. Mm. Now, obviously, the, the title of the piece is, is Is Theism Important? Theism being, I suppose, in a nutshell, belief in God. In fact, Lewis takes some time to spell out, uh, you know, his terms as well. Um, he, he goes on to talk about sort of different ways of sort of coming to belief in God um, and different ways in that which that could be manifested. He talks about uh, two ideas of faith A and faith B. Do you want to explain what he, he means by this, these different ways of coming to theism, faith A and faith B? Sure. Well, the, these aren't terms that are generally used, but Lewis invented them to kind of way focus on points he thought were important. So faith A is what he calls settled intellectual assent, um, um, which he really means is about thought. It's about thinking. It's about believing that there is a God. But believing that there is a God is not necessarily a religious commitment. It might just mean that intellectually, I think there might be a God. Um, and you can just leave it there. And indeed, we know that in the 1920s, before he kind of discovered God properly, Lewis had this idea that maybe thinking that there is a God made, made some sense of things. But it was not a religious belief. It was just a kind of philosophical exploration. And then there's what he calls faith B, and that is about trust or, or confidence, a relational idea. In other words, you, you say there is a God, that's faith A, but I trust this God. And that's, uh, that's taking the stage further. It's not just saying I acknowledge the existence of God. It is this God is able to relate to me. I can trust in this God and do something with it. And Lewis says it's a bit like having confidence in a friend, not just knowing there's a friend there, but actually mm. letting the friend be a friend by being someone you can trust and, and help you with your difficulties. So if you like, faith A is saying there is a God. Faith B is let this God be God. Let, let God do the things for you that God's meant to mm. do. Mm. And, and to that extent, he says that, you know, if, if, if apologists and philosophers are making arguments for God in the sort of faith A type, you know, let me try and persuade you that there is a divine mind behind the universe. That might bring us to some kind of settled intellectual assent, as he says. But that's not enough, in a sense. It can be quite dry, as we know, you know, and, and as he says, you know, even the demons believe and tremble, quoting from James. Um, it, it's not necessi- that doesn't necessarily bring you to what Christianity is supposed to be. That, that's the point of it, isn't it? That's the point. Um, and I suppose we could say that, you're further on than you used to be, you know, and, and it's not something we want to um, um, you know, dismiss, but what Lewis is saying, we've got to go further. So in effect, um, persuading somebody by rational argument that there is a God is a good step, but the next step is deeper. It's relational. It's existential. Mm. This is one who you can trust. How do you know you can trust God? Well, you have to use the language of relationships like faith or love or trustworthiness. And these are all relational terms that you find used extensively in the New Testament. So Lewis is really saying we've got to find a way of saying that theism is a good starting point, but there's a lot more that needs to be said. A purely intellectual belief in God doesn't actually do the job properly. 
Indeed. And, and I've often felt the same myself, you know, having moderated many a debate on my unbelievable show between Christians and atheists. I'm often left with the question, well, if you could, you know, with a, a wonderfully, you know, cogent philosophical argument, persuade this sceptic to believe in God, well, what would you have achieved? I mean, you may say, he may in the end say, yes, I, I believe now. The question is, would they still want to worship that God? Would they want to trust their life to that God? Would they want to love that God? That's That seems like an almost different category because um, you can still, you know, I think even Lewis at various points in his writing says, you know, as long as we sort of hold God off as a sort of intellectual idea mm. to be examined and, you know, we don't let that God too close and have any make any demands upon us, people are often comfortable with that. What they're uncomfortable with is the God who becomes personal in that sense. Well, that's right. I mean, Lewis talks about God as the great interferer, and he, and he didn't want anybody to interfere with him. He, he's very, very clear. I want to be autonomous. And interestingly, there are a lot of philosophers, I think of uh, Thomas Nagel, who would say, look, um, I do not want there to be a God. I want to be free to do whatever I like, and therefore I will, I will not leave believe in God. And I'm going to dream up these arguments which say why there can't be a God. So if you like, the desire that there is no God is primary arguments that there is no God are secondary for him. That's a very interesting mm -hmm. point. It's all like a wish fulfillment. I don't want there to be a God. So I'm going to invent the arguments which will tell me there is no God. And, and again, just before we move on to other things from this essay, I've, I've often ha found it helpful to kind of think through the difference between what you might call belief, faith A, as he calls it, and trust or faith, faith B. Um, we did an experiment in my church, Alistair. I'll, I'll describe this for you and anyone listening. Um, we, we, we set up a giant pendulum on the stage. Uh, so we'd, we'd rigged up a big rope with a large bucket filled with rocks to make this very large swinging pendulum. And I explained to the congregation that the laws of physics tell us that when I, if I was to stand at one end of the stage and hold this bucket up to my face and let this pendulum go and allow it to swing out fully in its arc and back again, the laws of physics tell me that it will not go any further than the point at which I released it. And I said, we can all believe this. We can all assent to this, as it were. But it's a different matter trusting it, putting our trust in that. And so I had my, my teenage son, Noah, put this to the test. And he, he very bravely went to the edge of the stave, lifted this heavy bucket full of rocks and towards his face, uh, let it go. And we saw it swing across the stage all the way back again. And bless him, he didn't flinch. He stayed stock still where he was. And it, it was only a few inches away from his face when it, when it came back. But there was a difference between intellectual assent to that physical principle and actually putting your life in the hands of it as it were and, and i think that's sometimes helpful for the distinction between simple belief and faith is is well are you willing to trust your life to this that's the point you can believe in it sure but but the, when the rubber hits the road it's whether you're actually willing to to kind of put your life in the hands of of god of, of jesus in that kind of way Yep, and Luther makes a very similar point. Luther says, look, imagine a boat. Um, you say it's there, but uh, if you want to get to that island over there, you've got to entrust yourself to the boat. And that's a different idea altogether. Let's talk about some of the influences on this particular essay as well. Um, uh, Lewis discusses the importance of Rudolf Otto's book, The Idea of the Holy, which has this key idea of the numinous um, tell us about when Lewis read this and how he interacted with it and how, how this comes out in, in this particular essay. Well, Lewis read this book during the 1920s. And actually, it, Lewis is regularly asked, what are the most important books you've ever read? And this book 
regularly features on that list. Now, it's not a book that many of our listeners will know, um, but it's a book in which this German writer, Rudolf Otto, says, look, um, there's a danger we reduce religion to simply rational ideas. And the point is, at the heart of a real religion is what he calls um, the numinous. In other words, something that is mysterious, something that is overwhelming. It's a bit like Isaiah chapter six, you know, Isaiah seeing God in all of God's glory and fullness. It, it's something which actually overwhelms you. And Rudolf Otto said that is actually what lies at the heart of a real religious faith, an experience of something that is wonderful or amazing or sometimes actually slightly frightening. You, you just feel that you've encountered something which is um, much bigger than you are. And actually, I've, I've had Christians who, who know that experience and will say it's very, very powerful. And what Lewis is saying is that we, we have to realize that um, – that is not simply about being rationally persuaded that there is a God. It's about saying, I've experienced something which, uh, which, which makes me rethink everything in the light of this. Mm. I mean, it's what we might call today awe. Um, mm. And, and I've, I, again, returning to our, you know, scientists and, you know, people who look at the stars, very frequently, they, I, I'm, they almost have a quasi-religious respect for the universe and what they see that it's this awe-inspiring thing. Um, and, and, you, you sort of wonder at what point they tip from simply doing science to actually having a semi-religious experience. And, and, and as, as Lewis says, um, there are aspects of the things we encounter that appear to be, as he says, lit by a light from beyond the world. There's, whether it's music, whether it's looking at the cosmos, whether it's great poetry, literature and so on, there's, there's something about that numinous, as you say, awe-inspiring aspect that that speak, that points beyond itself. That's the point, isn't it, Alistair? Well, that's right. In other words, to look at the distinction we talked about in an earlier podcast, I mean, you can look at something uh, and then you can realise actually it's inviting you to look along it and and you see it in a different way. And there are so many people I know who've had an experience of awe, wonder at the night sky, who in effect have realised that when you look along the experience, it's pointing towards God. In other words, it's not complete in itself. it's, It's, if you like as if things are being lit up from beyond, to use that phrase, and inviting you to see that and then begin to recalibrate the way you think and the way you live in the light of it. I mean, Lewis picks up this idea of, of you know, something that evokes sometimes feelings of nobility, bravery, sometimes terror, um, in the way that he sketches out the children's response to the name of Aslan. This is one of the most memorable bits of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe for me. It's when the children are in the beaver's house and they first hear of the name of Aslan and, and they all have a different response. Uh, I'll quote here. Um, Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you woke up in the morning and realized that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Um, tell us a bit about sort of what Lewis is trying to capture or express in that in that passage. Well, what Lewis is doing here is drawing on Rudolf Otto, but moving it in his own distinct direction. The point that Otto is making is that this experience of awe or uh, amazement or, or the numinous energizes you in, in a number of ways. It, it, it kind of way makes you think new thoughts. It um, might frighten you. It might make you have a sense of 
absolute wonder and amazement, something very, very pleasant, but that is linked with who you are. And what Lewis is doing here is really interesting. He's saying maybe Aslan is a numinous figure. And he illustrates this by, as you were rightly saying, in fact, describing the the feelings that the children have as this mysterious name is mentioned. And each of them responds in a different way, reflecting who they are. And I think the point that Lewis is making here, and it's a very, very rich point, is that actually, although God is God, each of us kind of way experiences God in a slightly different way. We must never reduce God to what we experience individually. It's much more than that. Even though there may be some aspect of God that really speaks to us or connects up with us, there is always more to discover. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to talk about the way we experience God, because A, it helps us realize there is more to discover for each of us. But also, in terms of apologetics, it's very important in terms of how we begin to connect up with a wider culture and begin to, in effect, say this is what Christ or God is able to do for you in terms of giving you something amazing that you can relate to. Mm-hmm. And, and and kind of bringing this back to the sort of evangelism and, and sort of bringing people towards Jesus, I think the de- great danger in apologetics, as I experience it, is, is it, it tends tends to gravitate towards that faith a sort of intellectual arguments and as you say always a place for that and as lewis i think says in this essay he says i, I know hardly any adult christian who who has not had some you know rational argument being part of their process to, to coming to faith having said that we aren't simply brains on legs are we and we we've got this aspect of us where we we need it's only when we the whole of us gets spoken to that that we really engage in this and to that extent how do we how do we go about engaging not just the intellectual side of you know when we're speaking to people about faith but but helping them to kind of see that big picture to relate that um you know maybe it's you know maybe it'll come up in the context of someone telling you about some extraordinary experience they had what what how do we then sort of help people to kind of see that in the light of the bigger story of Christianity? I think one thing we can do is look at the gospel narratives, because, um, for example, if you look at Mark's account of Jesus's ministry, people, people constantly are amazed or overwhelmed or astonished. You know, there's something here they just can't categorize. You know, not just a teacher, not just a healer, there's something about Christ. And um, you have the impression that Mark is straining to try and describe these experiences properly. I think one of the things we need to do is to get away from the idea that Christ is just a good religious teacher or something like that, that actually he has this transformative impact Mm. upon people. And that's why it's so important that people, A, talk about their experience of God and Christ, and B, the difference that it makes. People can relate to that. And what you're doing there is saying, to use Lewis's term, it's not just faith A, but it's faith B. This is the difference it makes. It's about someone I trust, someone I know, someone who reorganizes my life. And we need that to be out there in the culture. I think Lewis helps in this essay to work out how we might do that. Mm. By the way, there's there's an excellent, very recent essay um, that I could recommend people that, that I think it, it intersects with this, what we've been talking about very well. I don't know if you've come across it, Alistair, but Paul Kingsnorth is a, an author and poet, um, uh, quite well regarded. Um, and he wrote a fantastic essay about his adult conversion to Christianity uh, a year or two back. Um, it's called The Cross and the Machine. And when I've, in- I've interviewed um, uh, Paul for the most recent edition of our big conversation series, which you have been on before, Alistair, this time, though, in, in conversation with Rowan Williams. And 
and so much of what Lewis is saying here resonates in, in Paul's story where he, he really didn't have an intellectual conversion so much as things made sense when he began seeing things through a Christian worldview. He, it was this, this sense that, and, it, and he, he's very honest about it. He says, you know, don't ask me to give you a philosophical, you know, argument for God. I just know that Jesus makes sense of my story and makes sense of all the stories I see around me. And and there's that 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 sense of the numinous has very much been part mm. of his story. And and I just get the sense that we don't we often we, we, we often miss the point that, you know, even if Richard Dawkins can walk into a church and feel something. There's there's a sense something that you can't just dismiss necessarily when something is reaching you in a different way than just a, a sort of rational argument. Does that make sense, Alice? It makes perfect sense. I think, I think the danger is that Christians still are over-influenced by the Enlightenment and the feeling you have to do everything by reason. But it, I mean, the, the wonder is the gospel connects up with every faculty we possess because God made us, you know, and we're meant to use these faculties, the imagination, reason, emotion. You know, Francis Spufford's book on, on apologetics is, is about how Christianity makes emotional sense. And he shows that very, very well. And for a lot of people, that's the way in. I mean, you want, mm. you know, the way you come in is very, very important. Once you're there, you can discover the Christianity in all its richness. But for everyone, there's a different way in. I think that's a very important point to appreciate. Been great to chat this through with you. Thank you again for the time, Alistair. And if you want to go and Find this for yourself. You're looking for Lewis's essay, Is Theism Important? Next time on the show, we're going to be going to another uh, one that had its first outing as a talk at the Socratic Club in Oxford. Um, that's Is Theology Poetry? But we'll be back for that at the same time next week. For now, thanks for being with me today, Alistair. Wonderful to be with you. Look forward to the next one. Well, we look forward to seeing you again next time. Don't forget to register for more from the show at premierunbelievable.com. And a reminder that if you want all the sessions, including Alistair's from our unbelievable conference, God Unmuted, that's also available now to download at premierunbelievable.com. Simply click on shop. We'll continue talking about the shorter works of C.S. Lewis next time. See you then.